A personal injury case can change every aspect of your life forever. Don't walk alone. Fritz and Bian Cooley get the results you deserve. Call Brian at 215-458-2222. 215-458-2222. Search and rescue was specifically for live victims to be found. And today, you know, we just, you know after all the facts, all the uh, you know, factors, we've decided, you know, based on everything that's been given to us, that there are no live victims. So what we've done now is transfer to a search and recovery. And the search and recovery is now shifted to finding every victim in that uh, pile. So that's the difference between the search and rescue and the search and recovery. Free speech lives here. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT. WPHT HD. WOGL HD3. Philadelphia. Welcome to the Lawyer to Lawyer Network. Your hometown legal experts. From the courtroom to the boardroom, get educated on the law from some of the most powerful attorneys in the Delaware Valley. Welcome to the Lawyer to Lawyer Network. Here's Jay Doc and Joe Kraus. And welcome in, everyone, to this legal radio broadcast across the Jacob Media Radio Network. I'm Joe Kraus. Welcome in to a very special one-hour sit-down with attorney Brian Fritz, super lawyer, humanitarian, community advocate, and fighter, a tough lawyer for a tough town. Welcome in uh, to Brian Fritz. Brian, let me say hello to you first. Thanks for being here. This, of course, is our first series of the Legal Podcast Network presented by the Fritz and B. and Cooley Law Firm. We're going to specialize and we're going to talk about two very specific stories in the news. One really hard to talk about, um, but first, welcome in. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me, and uh, uh, hello and welcome to everybody uh out there listening on the radio. Yeah, no doubt about it. Welcome in. And we are going to cover uh, first in this opening half hour of the show today, uh, Brian, we are going to cover the condo collapse uh, in South Florida. Um, The tragedy still unfolding as we record and deliver uh, this broadcast and put this show together. Uh, you've been following it from the very beginning. Uh, many people around the region and many people listening in uh, have been following, stunned, Brian, in amazement on how something like this could occur. Yeah, and uh, uh, Joe, I, I have had experience, unfortunately, with uh, structural collapse cases and uh, the Philadelphia area. Uh, is is not immune as we all know in our over the course of the uh uh past uh couple decades we've had uh, an inordinate amount of collapses here um and when you start getting into these things and you start finding out the background and you learn what had been going on these things just don't fall out of the sky usually it's a history of deterioration a history of um neglect not only neglect of maintenance but also neglect in terms of uh appreciating the circumstances and um, what type of catastrophic um, uh, events are going on with these structures. Uh, we, we saw that uh, in Pier 34 uh, that I personally had worked on, um, where it had been a structure that had a history, a marked history of warnings um, of various professionals uh, indicating to the owners, that uh, owners and operators, that it was in a serious state. Um, and and at risk of imminent collapse. Um, so you usually see things that 
you know, these are surprising when they happen. However, when you find out the facts on the back on the back end, uh, it's not surprising at all. When you say marked history, you're referring to incidents or issues that over the course of whatever the timeline mm-hmm. is or was have been identified as potential serious issues. Sure. For, so, for instance, uh, to, to go back to Pier 34, because that's uh, probably very still, uh, still fresh in a lot of people's minds locally, uh, where there was a loss of life. Uh, any loss of life is, is, is too much. Uh, but three young women had died there. They're all uh, workers from the Camden Aquarium at that time and celebrating one of their birthdays. Um, and it was Club Heat. And what, uh, when I say marked history, going back to that, is um, part of the pier had actually fallen in in 1994 during one of those uh, storms that we had here. I think it was the, the remnants of a hurricane. Um, part of then it was a, um, I think it was when it was operated as a restaurant. Part of the parking lot had fallen in, and at that time, uh, there it was recommended that the um, the pier be torn down and rebuilt. But they did not want to pay for that. Um, but even before that, when they first purchased the piers in the eighties, uh, when the engineering reports were done, uh, they were told that the piers were in, um, uh, very bad shape. And, you know, the piers have initially been built in the 1860s in sort of a box structure. And then when pneumatic technology, uh, advanced, they then drove piles and extended it out. This was 1909, extended it out by 500 feet or something like that out into the river. Um, now, these things, obviously, uh, you have water. Anytime you have water, I mean, the water created the Grand Canyon, all right? Um, when you have water, and that's penetrating a structure, or the structure has to live and breathe and exist in water, um, you have a whole host of things going on with that structure that require maintenance, and it also creates a certain life expectancy on that structure. In the Surfside Condominium um, uh, situation, one of the first things uh, spoken about was this uh, permeation of water in, in certain areas and, and them seeing uh, different workers or people on site seeing water where it shouldn't have been to the point that it was actually startling to them. So if it was startling to those workers who were only there occasionally, what should have been to the management? And this is also what we saw on Pier 34 when we all the, the crack that started to um, uh, come about in the uh, days leading up to the actual uh, the eventual collapse and it started widening and widening and we have these cracks it's it's it basically tells you hey this thing's going to fall down and it's going to fall down right here so when this first happened um i knew that and I, probably a lot of people in the engineering world knew that you're going to hear stories that this building had exhibited um ongoing deterioration cracks uh um uh, exposed rebar, things like that that, would in, that that would tell you that it was not in a healthy condition. And lo and behold, within days after this, we started seeing these reports of it sinking um, and them not doing anything to suspend that. And then it's discussed that there was a $15 million project that was supposed to be underway, but they didn't have a chance to get to it. Um, usually the cost with something like this to suspend any sort of sinking and support that uh, it's a very costly uh, endeavor, um, and you have to get below the structure and do, uh, it, well, to the extent you can do anything, you have to get below the structure and sustain it by either injecting some sort of uh, concrete or grout to try to suspend its ongoing movement. Um, back to Pier 34, 
the front of that pier uh, was moving away. And let me just step back for a second to explain the structure itself, because a lot of people out there uh, may think that it was just like the boardwalk, where you just have piles and boards. It wasn't. What it was was uh, when it was first constructed, it was used with railroad tracks to go back and forth to unload ships. And um, over the course of time, uh, the um, that structure required is like eight feet of dirt um, with a concrete seawall. So it was it was much heavier and much larger than just piles and boards. And over to uh, to go back when they were building the new structures on it, they put crushed concrete fill on top of that. The engineer forgot to calculate that into the loads onto the pier itself. And crushed concrete fill is to uh, provide a um, a sub like a subfloor, and that increases certainly increases the weight by tons, by tons, yeah, yeah, by tons, because uh, it's concrete. Yeah. After all, it's just crushed in a way that makes it more gravelly, and that they they can work with it better to adhere a new floor or walking surface or building surface, either concrete, asphalt, whatever, and that's what they did, um, but. The, the structure itself, the boards that were actually on top of the piles were uh, uh, dilapidated. So all the fill was actively um, f- uh, falling out from the bottom of the pier. So essentially you're building on jello mm-hmm. and you put a lot more weight on it. Um, so they were told that to tear it down. So they, they kept coming back with uh, cheaper suggestions. They were basically putting Band-Aids on it. And eventually they put this cable around it to try to suspend it sort of like um like almost like a wrapping um you know the like almost like you would put string around the box mm-hmm. that's what they had done with cables to try to suspend it and over the course of time um even those things were had failed so it was clear and we all know there was a criminal the criminal charges with with that um where initially it was a hung jury and then there was a negotiated guilty plea uh for the operators um but in this situation here with the surfside condominium um, the, some of the officials have already spoken about the you know, grand juries being convened and looking into whether or not there is actually criminal charges. You know, charges. I'm trying to figure out, Brian. I'm saying to myself, hey, I own a condo mm-hmm. in Florida. Mm-hmm. I'm an HOA paying member of the condominium. I pay my $742 a month to the HOA fee. As an owner, are, is there ownership liability here or, 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 or not? I don't know if anybody else is thinking that. I'm asking that question. Do you know? Well, uh, certainly, maybe not from the owners themselves, the, con- the, the individual condo owners, but from the HOA standpoint, the folks that were responsible for um, actually, you know, making sure that this this place was in a safe condition. Whoever was charged with that, organization wise or individual wise, mm-hmm. uh, there, you know, depending on what the Florida laws are on that, um, certainly, uh, if if it provides for risking a catastrophe like up in Pennsylvania that exists, um, there may very well be criminal liability because this this seems to, and I I think what it will be developed more right now, obviously. Everybody's focused on the tragedy, um, rescue, now recovery of the people lost um, as things shift uh, and looks to um, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Who was responsible? 
you'll probably see more of a criminal uh, focus on that um, as, as things are developed. Yeah, I mean, you specialize, Brian, and your firm specializes in getting to the truth, in getting to the end of the story. Mm-hmm. This story, this tragic story, is a long way from understanding where that is, right? Um, because of the history of 40 years here. All right. Mm-hmm. So you, you, what will happen is, like as we did in Pier 34, you got to begin at the beginning. Um, and, you know, as things come about, and to go back, these things just don't happen. So you'll see where there will be a de- um, things developed over the course of time here of different reports, different indications, different complaints that all, when you add them all up, you'll have a chronology. Typically, you have a chronology mm-hmm. of things that were symptomatic of, hey, something's really wrong here. Um, and whether or not people decide just to stick their head in the sand, keep their fingers crossed, or what's the worst that could happen, well, that's not responsible property management. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and in terms of far from, uh, there's going to be a lot, because we're dealing with 40 years history here. Um, there will be a lot of uh, unearthing, but as you do that, um, it will probably be much more clear and may not be as daunting as you, as you expect. There'll probably be, you know, uh, about 20, 25 key documents here that really explain the history and what should have been known or what should have been done. And when you begin at the beginning, you're going to have to see what was recommended in terms of how this, this building was to be built and did they follow it? Because if we go back a second, um, you know, this is 1981, uh, what was going on in Florida at that time? in terms of the money coming in and, and who was doing what, but also even um, more to, to the point, I think it was Hurricane Andrew in the mid-90s uh, had hit that, uh, that, that area. And there was so much destruction of buildings. One of the things that came out was, had the buildings uh, been built to the code that was in place at the time of their construction, they would have withstood the, the hurricane. Mm-hmm. But things were being um, passed over, not complied with, and more or less given the blessing of, of whomever from the inspector's end that uh, the contractors or the builders were able to sidestep codes. Again, you know, this is the almighty dollar coming in play. So in the building of this, what I would want to know is in the construction of this building, uh, did they follow uh, structural engineer requirements? Uh, did they... Um, uh, place the footings where they should have been, were you know, things driven into the bedrock like they should have been to provide support, especially in a um, uh, an area that's known for water infiltration. Uh, you know, we've, uh, pools in Florida aren't deep because of just the natural permeation of water mm-hmm. there. There's swamps all over the place. It's just not necessarily a conducive environment to have a to build directly on the soil. You have to foot that, and those footings are supposed to be inspected. Did they properly um, foot that building? Um, I mean, when you start hearing that the building was sinking, you know, well, uh, that that's not a new concept. That's where the disconnect is for me, and I and I wonder for how many people listening in and watching the news stories every day there's uh, more unfolding as the tragedy uh, still comes to life and in, in, in front of us that's the part of it brian that i don't I, I i struggle to connect the dots as you said 
this doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. So when the tragedy occurred and the building came down, you know, on that night last week when it started to fall and creak and everything else before, uh, before it came down, you wonder how it made it to that point. And I feel so bad for all the owners and all the people that were inside. So, yeah, and, and you're in, in terms of that, uh, trying to wrap your arms around that conceptually, you know, where it just suddenly happens is, and as a shock, a surprise and, uh, you know, it just, you know, happened. Um, and it's really conceptually hard for us as human beings to get our arms around that because we're surrounded by so many buildings. Uh, and it's such an unusual happening mm-hmm. as well as the concept, the, the loss of human life, uh, to add to that. Um, however, having done these cases and having been involved in them and seeing what goes on, uh, sometimes you, you step back and you're actually more surprised that it doesn't happen more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to scare people, but that's just really just to say that there's a lot of neglect out there. Uh, and it usually all comes back to the same thing. Uh, it's about money that they don't do these things because somewhere, some, um, some way someone wants to save a buck or they don't want to put money out. Um, unfortunately that's where most of this goes. Uh, you know, inevitably, um, uh, in, in each one of these cases, somehow someone was trying to save a buck or do things on the, on, on the cheap. And unfortunately these things happen and, um, uh, they shouldn't, but it's because of the, you know, usually the motivation is some level of greed that we find in these cases. Uh, and that leads to these, these tragic results. Let's talk about the law here in terms of how it applies and what it means now for the families of those, um, who were lost, you know, the only, um, way to preserve their memory is some sort of a suit or settlement or monetary um, decision in their favor. What are their rights, Brian? Does the family know what their rights are yet, all these different families? As uh, as things um, subside in terms of just the, the, the initial human emotion and loss and people want the answers, the lawsuits will serve two things. One, um, Let's put aside the, the we spoke about whether or not there would be criminal charges or not, but the civil that's where private individuals uh, uh, bring a lawsuit to recover. All right, and this would uh, be in the world of negligence, but also probably other type of conduct too. Um, so the families in most situations uh, where you lose somebody, the heirs or the um, uh, people in the bloodline or uh, or spouses or whatever, whoever survived, um, could bring usually what's called a wrongful death and survival action uh, to seek um, recovery. Now, ultimately, uh, let's talk about what those two things are. Wrongful death is, um, obviously, the name captures what it is. All right, Someone is lost as a result of someone else's conduct, being negligent or otherwise, and you sue over that. Well, the wrongful death portion would um, uh, necessarily be what the heirs would have appreciated had the person lived, such as economic um, damages, uh, wages, those sorts of things. Some, in certain cases, they become uh, loss of tutelage, guidance, advice, counsel, those sorts of things. The survival action is if the person had actually survived, all right, what kind of case could they have brought themselves? And usually that's where the pain and suffering comes in. And, and those types of things. 
in a situation like this, uh, you know, it's uh, you have to you know get into what what did they experience, um, depending on you know it's gonna be maybe a little hard to do to recreate that, um, and it may be a little tough for the families to have an understanding as to whether or not the person suffered, uh, and and then you have to advance the case of pain and suffering. Um, Will that be necessary as an attorney? Would that be necessary for you to do, for an attorney to do? I think I would think so, as tough as it is. Yeah, so the attorney, the, the, the attorneys have a job to do, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and we usually have a conversation with our clients and, and uh, at times in those circumstances say, listen, you know, we we have a job to do. That's what you hired us to do. Unfortunately, some of these things are going to be tough, but you're going to have a heads up as to what we have to do um, and what you may hear. And, you know, we, we pursue that. I mean, that, that's part of the claim, part of the case. In this situation, okay, um, there's going to be so many claims, and the case is going to be so uh, large. Um, usually in, the, in these situations, sometimes the courts actually do a bifurcated trial where they'll determine liability first, who's responsible, all right, and then they would do damages uh, secondarily, all right, and, and that's where the pain and suffering things come in. In a lot of instances, what you see is once the liability is determined in this type of case, if it gets that far, okay, um, then uh, usually that prompts some level of resolution before you have to go through all the damages for a lot of the, a lot of the reasons. From a strategic standpoint, um, usually defendants don't want a jury to hear hundreds of people come in and testify about what these, uh, what the victims experienced, mm-hmm. because that's just going to you know, um, potentially uh, create a situation where the jury, um, really, there's not enough zeros to put down on the verdict. Does the court, I don't want to say force, because that's not the right word, but does the, does the system put all of these families collectively together? Is that how it works? So here's, here's what, when you have a case like this, uh, for, for, for the sake of judicial economy, uh, meaning uh, court resources, and you don't want to have um, the, these cases may all be filed separately, but then they usually for litigation purposes to make it more manageable, the court will consolidate them um, for whatever purpose. Like if it's just for to, to like we spoke about, one to determine who's at fault, then they'll do that, and then maybe determine each individual case by itself on its own merits based upon you know um, what what each victim uh, sustained or their heir sustained in terms of damages, right? So the court, just to make it more manageable, typically consolidates them, um, but each individual uh, person um, and claimants, the people bringing the case, would be able to have technically their own verdict uh, with their each own individual case determined by a jury. Uh, Sometimes, you know, we hear this concept of class actions and things like that. Um, there has to be so many, um, there has to be usually requirements of, of each case almost resembling um, each other that for the class to be certified and then pursued. In this type of situation, you, you, you typically wouldn't have the, a class setting. It would just be um, a um, mass type uh, tort <clears throat> claim um, that, and that's not to confuse, there's actually um, tort claims out there, but it's usually, you know, something that you have a lot of people in and it's consolidated, and um, then it's just managed that way. But it wouldn't be a class action. Talking with Brian Fritz from Fritz and Bean Cooley. Brian, you specialize. One of the areas that the firm specializes in is in, in, is, is catastrophic injury. Um, this scenario or this situation um, 
in Florida, the condo collapse is is catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, the English language really doesn't have um, a lot of words that, that that would appropriately describe what this is. Yeah. Um, and, and really even trying to, you find yourself at a loss to adequately convey mm-hmm. what this is. Um, and having done these cases, the other part that, that's very, very difficult to convey is um, what we see on the back end of, of behind the scenes as to what was going on and who knew what. And when you see those... Those things it becomes um, uh, infuriating is even the right word uh, in our in our experience when we um, learn uh, the 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 lead up uh, the the evidence um, that led up to this uh, you know there there's not a lot of appropriate words to to capture that um, but yes catastrophic is uh, putting it lightly yeah in ter- in terms of what happened here. Uh, the amount of human loss, uh, the, I mean, the, the last time we've seen something like this was a World Trade Center. Right. And that's where immediately where your mind goes back to. Um, and the fact that even when you start seeing this, uh, um, the, uh, the video of it, uh, that, that some, some of the surveillance cameras nearby caught uh, it actually collapsing. And it happened at what, with the, the early morning hours, which increased the probability of people being home in bed. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I read a story, an initial story that came out about a family out of from New Jersey who survived, who heard the or felt the structure moving, and he was able to get his wife and his and his two boys um, out of the out of the structure before you know before it came down. Mm-hmm. I mean, harrowing, harrowing, just a, just a horrible experience. Yeah. That that's it. it when you hear stories like that, it, you know, the closest thing that you can, you can even, um, uh, envision is some sort of movie scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, unfortunately people watch, uh, we, we've watched so many movies that somehow we, we think that that's, um, something like that, that type of escape scene is, uh, is, is possible. And a lot of times it's, it's absolutely not. Um, and, and that the fortune that that person had and, and, you know, uh, so someone somewhere, uh, divinity was, was looking upon them, um, because otherwise they would have been suffered the same fate as these other poor folks. Last thought from you, Brian, as we uh, get ready to take a short, uh, break and we thank everybody for tuning in and listening, uh, to our, uh, legal radio broadcast. Uh, last thought, uh, from you, Brian, and then we'll take a short break. Um, I mean, in, in situations like this, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the law and the courts provide a remedy um, for people to seek out. And, you know, it, just the loss, a lot of times uh, the, the law and what's available often falls short, but we're going to see a lot of, a lot of information um, in, in the pursuit of those claims that's going to come out that um, I truly feel is going to uh, make this um, uh, make this known, or make, make all of us know that this was something that wasn't it wasn't an if it was a when situation. As we take a short break here, um, remember this is our first series of the Legal Podcast Network uh, with the Fritz and B and Cooley Law Firm. You'll find the podcast the podcast on Apple or Spotify, and coming soon. Uh, to YouTube. Uh, On the other side, when we return, we're going to have a conversation about Bill Cosby in the news as well. Back in a moment. 
This is the Lawyer to Lawyer Network, sponsored by the Fritz and B and Cooley Law Firm. Injured on a job? My name is Brian Fritz of the Fritz and B and Cooley Law Firm. We got this. Today's program has been previously recorded. If Mr. Cosby's conviction being overturned, it's for the world and all Americans who are being treated unfairly by the judicial system and some bad officers, because all, all officers are not bad. So we want to thank this entire team. We want to thank Mrs. Cosby, her family. I want to thank my family. And just thank you all for those who decided to tell the truth and allowed us to tell the truth when we had the opportunity. And welcome back, everyone, to the legal radio broadcast across the Jacob Media Radio Network. Also, our first series of the legal podcast network with the Fritz and B. and Cooley uh, law firm. Brian Fritz is our special guest. Tough first half hour uh, of the show, Brian, to talk about uh, the tragedy uh, in Florida. Um, tough to watch, tough to learn about, um, necessary, of course, Um to be able to move forward and now start to understand everything, but a really tough conversation. Thank you for your legal insight um, in that first half hour. We're going to transition, as promised, into a completely different legal case that unfolded here in Pennsylvania uh, that not only created a tremendous amount of noise um, around the Philadelphia region, but around the country. Um, It appeared to be a shot directly at the Me Too movement and, of course, the release of Bill Cosby uh, from jail um, after the state Supreme Court ruled that he should not have been tried again. Pick up the story from there. Um, sure. This is uh, you know, an example of... Uh, Reliance uh, and where a prosecutor um, makes certain uh, promises, and whether or not they're bound, and their and anybody that comes after them, standing in a prosecutorial role, uh, are bound by the promises made by their predecessor or the previous DA in this situation. And the court found that, uh, in fact, they were uh, they you know, that the reliance there is uh, binding upon um, uh, the prosecutors. And this situation, and let's take a step back. So we have the, there's, we have the criminal um, case where uh, Constant, uh, the, the female um, uh, accuser um, against Cosby, there was, it was investigated whether or not there was a, a criminal uh, case. Caster found uh, the DA at the time. Uh, in reviewing it, found that... Um, uh, he did not feel confident that he would be able to be successful in a criminal prosecution. In order for her to receive some level of justice, according to Castor, for that, he then uh, committed himself um, or the or the uh, the prosecutor's office to not trying Bill Cosby criminally. That would allow him to uh, testify freely in a civil suit again, where to, a person sues another person to get some sort of wrong addressed or redressed and um, in doing that he felt that that would be the greatest likelihood of her re- receiving some level of justice and a civil suit was pursued where she sued Bill Cosby he sat for four depositions where that's a proceeding where uh, a witness comes in swears to tell the truth as asked questions there's um, underneath certain 
rules the the, the representing attorney or the the, the witnesses attorney um, cannot overly interfere in in the um, uh, in this proceeding. It's not before a judge or jury, but it's typically recorded. A court reporter is there taking everything down, and then um, uh, that's used later on uh, if necessary. Uh, to confront the witness at trial, uh, but it's ultimately to preserve and discover, that's part of what's called discovery, discover what the witness has to say under oath. Um, so he testified for four four days of depositions, okay? Um, so you now had four transcripts out there of him just providing testimony that was very um, uh, incriminating. But he is providing it just to, so everybody can follow along, me included. He is, at that point, he's providing that testimony. He's being candid in that he's answering the questions that he's being asked. And he knows that while he's answering them, he is he cannot be charged or he cannot be prosecuted for whatever he says, right? That's the impression that he had and his attorneys had and allowed him to do that. Now... Um, and that's why he did that. So typically what happens is if you have a, a criminal case and a civil case, sometimes this does occur. We spoke earlier about Pier 34. Mm-hmm. When we were in, in the pursuit of that, the civil case that where the, the, the families sued the peer operators as well as others, that case was proceeding. The peer operators were also simultaneously being um, uh, were criminally charged, and that case was being pursued in the criminal court system. So in the civil case, we could not necessarily get their depositions testimony because the criminal case was ongoing. If they would have come in and testified, they would have just taken the fifth so that that testimony could not be used in the criminal case. So sometimes you do have both going on at the same time, but either you suspend the civil case and wait for the criminal one to end so that the person comes in and testifies candidly and does not uh, invoke the Fifth Amendment. Um, That's where you... Uh, you have the right not to uh, testify against yourself underneath our constitutional rights. Um, and you either wait for that to end or you just have to forego getting their deposition, but you're not going to get that testimony. That's how it typically works. Um, now, in this situation, the DA promised um, that he wouldn't be prosecuted. He, The court said Cosby relied upon that promise and what then came in and testified um, candid, frankly, under oath, providing incriminating de- uh, testimony um, uh, against himself that he wouldn't have otherwise had done, but for the promise. Then it got into a little bit of a, uh, you know, well, was the was it a formal promise that the prosecutor had made? And the court does a whole analysis, a 79-page opinion. The court does a whole analysis about that, but ultimately what they're saying is when you have this level of assurance by a prosecutor who then goes out and makes this press release about this, how he won't be prosecuted. And you have now someone come in and testify for four days of deposition that they wouldn't have otherwise had done. You know, underneath the, those those circumstances, uh, as a basis of fundamental fairness and due process, um, it doesn't comport with our justice system to let someone to go in underneath those circumstances, incriminate themselves, and then later on say, gotcha, and now prosecute them. Uh, at a later date and time, especially so far removed in time from when, when these when these uh, allegations uh, or actions had taken place. Well, fast forward so I can understand it. So does that mean when the new district attorney decided to 
prosecute Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. that he was allowed, well, he obviously did it. I just didn't understand how he was allowed. He was actually allowed to, to overrule Bruce Castor, who was the DA at the time who made the deal, and he did it because he went on, and, and ultimately Cosby was, the second time through, was convicted. Sure. So it wasn't that, that it wasn't fought, that the decision to do this was not fought. It was fought aggressively by Cosby's defense team. And that, that, that was the, the whole issue that was raised up on appeal because the, they said that the lower court got it wrong. And then that went up through the Superior Court and now ultimately made the Supreme Court. So they preserved the issue, what we call an appellate issue. Uh, by bringing it up, they had, uh, they had filed certain motions with the court uh, to say that the, the whole, um, that the charges should be thrown out because of this reliance. The trial court's, disagreed, allowed him to be uh, 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 tried on these allegations, not, as you indicated, not once, but twice. Hung jury the first time, second time comes in, uh, and then they, they actually had brought in um, uh, a variety of witnesses. There was a second issue in this, was whether or not all these other women who had, uh, that came in and testified about their experience with, with Cosby, whether or not they... Um, and their testimony from the 80s and those types of things, whether or not that should have been admitted as well. So there was those two main issues that went up on appeal, but the main one was the reliance on Bruce Castor's promise. And what the court found was that all the subsequent or the the DAs that came after him should likewise have been bound by his promise. So now he cannot be retestified. He cannot be prosecuted. Correct. The, the, the court, the court even concluded that they said that you know based upon that promise, he should never be prosecuted to begin with. So now certainly he can't be tried again. It's it's not something, it's not something where there's some evidentiary error committed by the court that uh, you should now go back and have another trial because the first one wasn't fair because of those evidentiary mistakes made in the um, in the other uh, uh, in the other case or in, or at the time of trial um, here. The court just concluded, listen, this should have never gone on in the first place, so certainly you can't go back and do it again. Talking with Brian Fritz from Fritz and B. and Cooley, we're discussing the Cosby release and the end of what was a shortened jail sentence. Uh, I believe Bill Cosby served two of what was, um, I think it was three to seven, but I think he was two years in, Brian, when he was was released. Um, Back to the deal for a moment. When you make a deal with a prosecutor Mm -hmm. to testify, which Cosby did, should you now be concerned that that deal could be overlooked at any point? Well, is there any precedent? I guess I'm wondering. So to this, yeah. So so here's you, you that that's the probably the most uh, the greatest looming question in there, and also there's some practical concerns. You want people to make deals, okay? And now if everybody has to think that hey, um, uh, the prosecutor may not live up to their end, that I'm going to you know be exposing myself uh, to uh, certain criminal liability. How likely are you to be making these deals then, right? And then where does that put certain things? Um, and also, there's something I, I think the court found that that there was 
you know, just something that was a, a little off-putting about, you know, relying upon certain promises and then, you know, uh, coming back and, and having this uh, snafu where you just put yourself in a, in a very precarious bind. And also that's, you know, from, from the legal perspective, from the attorneys, you know, um, uh, you know, if you, if you have these assurances and you let your client go and testify, um, you know, it's what you probably, if you can't rely upon the prosecutor, um, then as an attorney, you can't then let your client, you know, proceed and testify. And then where does that put certain things? It, 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 it could place a lot of, um, agreements, uh, in jeopardy. A lot of the, a lot of the process that the justice system depends upon, uh, goes out the window. Um, so, you know, going back to the original question, um, you know, there, there should be, uh, reliance on that. And it's almost that like the court looked at it as, you know, in, in sort of a contract type situation where there was an exchange of promises, um, where there was a, a promise not to prosecute in, in exchange for him uh, not taking the Fifth Amendment and testifying in the civil case and allowing Constant to have some level of or some pursuit of justice that way. Did Cosby's attorney make a mistake here going back to the four sit-downs with Castor? Um, it wasn't Castor that he gave the testimony to. He gave the testimony in a civil case that she had brought. Where oh, okay. So, 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 where? Uh, what could have been done differently? If yeah. we focus on that. Um, well, the the thing that the prosecutor, the new prosecutor who pursued him, um, kept saying was that it wasn't a true deal because there wasn't some sort of consummated writing. Um, it wasn't rendered down to that between Cosby's uh, group and and the prosecutor's office. Mm -hmm. um, and what Castor was saying that his press release that was signed um, was the the written the rendered written agreement uh, as to at least from the prosecutor's office. Um, so what could have been done differently? Well, certainly you could have had a more specific document drafted and signed off on by the DA. Um, to make sure that you know later on, uh, you know somebody could not have um, resurrected this, and and but I think also we have to we can't ignore what was going on at the time, right? That there was this uh, public um, uh, pressure uh, that was coinciding with the Me Too movement, um, and against uh, you know people that had uh, taken advantage of of women in various circumstances or had used their celebrity to take advantage of women in certain circumstances, that that was at its height when all this was going on. At the time, his attorneys made this deal with Castor back in 04, 05, there was no such pressure. Um, so, you know, how much of a crystal ball should you have at the moment? I mean, you, you can only do so much. And I think the relationship was there uh, between the, the, the his defense team and Castor that there was one a professional um, relationship that they could rely upon one another as to, you know, uh, promises or deals, and maybe they felt that it wasn't necessary to get that next step, that, that whatever they had was sufficient. But what could have been done differently if there was a more specific uh, document as to uh, Bill Cosby himself following certain statutes out there just to have all your I's dotted and T's crossed, may, maybe that may have uh, spelled out a different scenario. Strange question, um, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, does Bill Cosby have any... Legal uh, opportunity to sue Kevin Steele 
and Montgomery County for putting him through this process and for him spending two years in prison that he shouldn't have spent and on and on and on? Well, certainly um, he could make that claim. He could make the the allegations of of, of wrongful use of uh, criminal proceedings, um, whether or not that how what what kind of traction that gets if if someone sits in a in a um, elected position and they're using you know their their best judgment and uh, executing their duties. Do they have immunity? Does the office have immunity? Um, all these things might be uh, f- uh, flushed out through some sort of uh, legal proceeding that way. Um, now the uh, or whether or not there was a violation of even civil rights. Uh, which might be a, a, a something that's a little bit have, has more sure footing there, um, but I'm, I'm confident that his legal team is is looking to all those potential avenues uh, to see whether or not this man can get um, some some level of uh, redress as a result of the uh, Supreme Court opinion. Um, also, I guess the flip side on the other end is, you know, from a practical standpoint, you know, he's what I think they said 80 years old now. Um, how much of this aspect does he want to continue in the spotlight versus trying to uh, rehab um, his his uh, uh, public image mm-hmm. and trying to uh, you know maybe boost up uh, his body of work uh, or his career um, if that's possible I'm not sure you know if, if that if that ultimately turns out to be uh, a no-go because um, I think there was some some discussion about him trying to uh, yeah, get back on the tour. Get back on tour. Yeah, I, I mean, one, one. I'm not sure how much he was touring before all this happened, um, but uh, I'm not sure how practical that is because because of his age um, or his stamina to do it. Uh, but um, I'm not also sure how much of a draw he's going to get as a result of the stigma, stigmatization uh, about everything that happened here. So, in the, uh, from a practical standpoint, if that turns up to be turns out to be a no go. For him, where it's not fruitful, then um, pursuing the uh, uh, some sort of civil action to the extent one's available um, might become more uh, attractive to him. Take a short break and give you uh, deliver you a message from the Fritz and B and Cooley Law Firm, uh, and then come back with our special guest Brian Fritz uh, and finish it up on the other side. The Lawyer to Lawyer Network continues, sponsored by the Fritz and B and Cooley Law Firm. If you or someone you know suffered a catastrophic injury, my name is Brian Fritz of the Fritz and B and Cooley Law Firm. We got this. Today's program has been previously recorded. And welcome back, everyone, to this legal special. We hope that you've enjoyed the conversation today with Brian Fritz, the legal radio broadcast airing across the Jacob Media Radio Network. And of course, this our first series of the Legal Podcast Network in partnership with the Fritz and B and Cooley uh, Law Firm. Brian, uh, you've been so kind and generous with your time. We never actually stopped uh, to provide um, the listening audience with some contact information from you and put out some of what your firm is just a tremendous resource. Uh, so I'd love for you to just talk about that for a moment um, and before we say goodbye. Sure. Uh, thanks, Joe. Uh, my name, obviously, is Brian Fritz of the law firm of, of Fritz and B and Cooley. Uh, we are located, we have offices in Center City, South Philadelphia, Northeast Philadelphia, as well as Southern New Jersey. We, we are actively involved in cases to uh, right the wrongs of victims that suffer injuries or loss as a result of someone else's neglect or, or actions. And we do that in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and throughout the country as well. 
Um, we specialize in a lot of catastrophic injuries. People ask me, what do I, what do, I do? What type of lawyer I am? And I usually say, I, I, I see all the stuff that makes you afraid to walk out the door in the morning. And we uh, try to provide answers to the people left behind and provide some level of, of justice and recovery to them so that all their suffering um, uh, wasn't in vain or isn't in vain. And uh, we've been doing that for many, many years. What drives you, Brian? The, the main thing, you know, Joe. I mean, you're a good guy, man. You're a Philly guy. You're born Philly. I mean, you know, you're real, man. I mean, that's why I'm sitting here across from you. I, you know, I'd, I want the audience to know that. So, you know, and a long time ago, what, what I learned, Joe, is sometimes it's easier to fight for what's right for others than it is even for yourself. Mm-hmm. And when you have the ability or talent that's able, that, that you're able to come in and actually, um, you know, uh, level the playing field for folks that can't do that for themselves, um, there's, there's some sort of psychic income from that and uh, a reward that, you know, it goes well beyond any sort of money. Um, and, you know, when you're able to do that, you're leave, able to leave your finger, uh, po- fingerprints in, in a positive way on folks, and that has a ripple effect of not only to them, but also their legacy or their, uh, all their uh, generations to come. And they can use certain recoveries to either um, achieve or provide people in the family with opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have. Well, you know, you, you step back and there's that's something to be proud of, albeit through tragedy uh, oftentimes, but you're able to do that for, for those folks and put them in a different place and their families. Um, yeah, it's hard to adequately describe that with words, and maybe words would actually cheapen it, but that is the driving force. The real Brian Fritz from Fritz and Being Cooley. We hope you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. Stay tuned uh, for uh, many more series to come of the Legal Podcast Network, and this, of course, being our first legal radio broadcast across the Jacob Media uh, Radio Network. You'll find the podcast conversation. Just get it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you consume uh, your podcast. And soon, coming soon, um, our legal podcast on YouTube. That coming as well. So lots of good stuff uh, happening uh, with the Fritz NB and Cooley Law Firm. That's going to do it uh, for this show. On behalf of Brian Fritz, I'm Joe Krause. See you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Lawyer to Lawyer Network, a Jacob Media production. If you'd like to learn more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.